This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It, it reminds me a bit, again, of the episode we did a couple of weeks ago. Daniel Mate was talking about the idea of the personality as a sort of survival mechanism, that you mistake your personality for who you think you are, whereas actually what it's just the way that you had to develop certain traits in order to navigate the sort of environment you grew up in. And, and it's interesting, this idea of that not only could your personality be something that he helps you get by, but and it gets you to a point and then you get stuck, right? Then you start looping around in these particular ways. But that also it's not just your personality traits, it's the stories you've told yourself or the stories you're being told about who you are that keeps you in that place and keeps you stuck there. And the idea that you can, like Daniel's thing was like, you go for a walk, you change perspective, right? And that a similar thing can happen with your mind. And it's the same thing here. It's like you have these stories, either that have been put on you or a story you're telling yourself, you're going around in a loop with these stories. And then there's something powerful about being able to move, change perspective, have a different story. And then the effect that then has, obviously, sounds like it's pretty profound. I believe it is. I believe it's the, I think that stories, storytelling, narratives in their multiple forms are one of the most powerful weapons we have to change the world. <laughs> Not to, just to put it in a, just to yeah. put a small thing on it there. It really is. Yeah. The game changer is the narratives. And, and so, if, you know, the more that we invite and encourage and empower and equip people to tell their own narratives and to see themselves, to, to undo their own narratives so that they're, they have narratives that honor them as humans, that's the, game, that's the thing that when we all do that and we bear witness to each other's and we honor each other's and then we can move forward together. It's, it's an advocacy movement. It's going to take a movement, a grassroots community organizing advocacy movement to change the treatment industry. It has no incentive to change. It's, it is very it's, profitable. <laughs> it's working exactly how it's supposed to, which is to make money and to keep people oppressed. And I say that when I really do want to, again, I, I there are many wonderful, amazing people working in this field and who have come before me. The elders, I have so much respect for them, how far they've gotten us and all of the amazing work that they've done. And so that it's not all bad, but it is time for change. And we need to embrace that change because we are in the middle of real pandemic of death. And if we cannot come together and make change happen and fight these the systems that are contributing to the deaths of despair, we are going to continue to see higher and higher numbers all the time. Year after year, it's going to continue. It's unabated. We've made, we had a little dent around 2015, 2016, where we saw a little dip and, and it's just gone back up since then. It's gotten worse in some ways. I mean, there are a lot of various factors that's contributing to the current trend of 
things, but I used to incorporate from my story background narratives in when I was doing counseling. And it's funny because one of the being able to speak honestly outside of these expected performances is it, I had one client laugh and tell me that he felt like this experiencing is this experience was like positive CBT where he wasn't gaslighted because that's ultimately like a huge part of CBT is your inner dialogue. Except a lot of times how it gets mendaciously used is to invalidate people's experiences. You, your, your, your thinking is wrong. You have to change right. your thinking. And a lot of what gets perceived as thinking isn't necessarily thinking. It's somebody's experience. Exactly. It's it's rooted in feelings and real things that are happening for that person. And being able to write out, again, write out your experiences without having to perform a certain script, it can be a very powerful thing. Yeah, this idea of play, I'm pretty sure that it's in either like Freud's work or Winnicott or something, this whole idea that kids often plays a a scene of reenactment, but now they're going to have a sense of control over it, right? So something was upsetting or et cetera, and now in the play that they can reenact this thing and things can be played out differently, (laughs) literally played out differently. The point being is that you're in control, right? So I'm wondering how, if you've seen that in the work that you're doing, I'm wondering how the theatre aspect of stuff works in what you do as well? Yeah, absolutely. So theater, like performance theater, is people writing things that to make sense of challenges, right? To understand why bad things happen, to reenact, to explore alternatives to what actually happened, or just to honor what did happen so we all have a chance to apply some meaning to it. The type of theater that I do is more what's called applied theater where like improv exploring it's I'm a big fan of first person stuff rather than I love all theater and work in all theater but there's a difference between having a script and playing games that where you are emerging into stories of your own. And so I'm really fascinated and work most with this sort of emerging stories, emerging voices, emerging stories from people who have been locked in a in, within themselves or their voices are locked or their stories are locked or whatever and unlocking them and letting them emerge and like birds that are that that come from inside you and fly. And what that type of play lets us do is explore ourselves and explore ourselves within group within community so what is it what happens when I share this part of myself how is that received how does that feel to me what happens next is it safe to do that and that that aspect of play where you know kids try on different personas I'm going to be the mom. We're going to play house. I'm going to be the mom. You're the dad, blah, 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 blah. Is that thing of what does it feel like to put this identity on? And does it fit? Do I like it? Does it feel right? And so a lot of this sort of improv and this embodied story thing that has emerged from my work is let me just try some things on because I honestly, I actually have no idea who I am. And maybe some of the parts that I do know, I'm afraid to own. 
or be in the world with them. And the creativity of who could I be Mm. or how can I express who I think I might be? The exploration of what is it, what does it do? If I'm, if this is a piece, a part of me that I'm going to, what does it do? Does it work? Does it solve problems for that I have? Does it make me feel like I belong? Does it make me feel left out? Does it make someone like me or approve of me or want to engage with me or does it turn people off? So it's, it is this, uh, the part of play where we're learning, we're problem solving, we're exploring and we're trying on identities, I think is what I see the most of in the work that I do with people. The project I just finished was with unhoused folks who identify as having problematic substance use, doing this work over five sessions and teaching them how to lead. It's a peer leadership piece. So we used this curriculum to equip them to then use this curriculum themselves. So they have continued to lead the group after I've gone, after I finished my sessions, and now they hold the group every week on their own. When they teach more, they're teaching others to do it. And it and what it did was give them new identities, identities they could feel good about, identities they could feel proud of. They got to try on this facilitator hat, this leader hat in in it's remarkable to watch people emerge from this fully protected, locked away, street-based lifestyle, survival, human suit, to fake human suit, to emerge into these beaming, beautiful, radiant glimpses, sometimes just glimpses of whole identity, like whole other identities for them to own. And it was because all I did was give them a place to explore that. And so even within many of the things that we offer people who are seeking wellness from things like mental health and violence and grief and loss, substances, and is so much more rigid that it doesn't allow people to explore, play, and come up with their own identities that honor their own culture and all of the things that they are, all of their intersections and everything. It's this is what we offer. And you do you fit in or don't you fit in? Yeah. There's this article I read recently. It has a parallel, though it won't necessarily seem like it to begin with. It was about the video game The Sims. I don't know if mm-hmm. either of you ever played it. And it, it was, I think it was alluded to as The Sims because it was someone who used to work there and they couldn't say it was The Sims, but it was obvious. But they did all these test groups and stuff like that. And they asked the men after they'd played it, like what they did with the characters. And it's like, yeah, I killed them or I drowned X, Y, Z, or I set this thing on fire, blah, blah, blah. That's what they'd say. But actually what the data revealed is that when they played the game they were like decorating the bathroom or they were trying on different (laughs) outfits right that's amazing (laughs) yeah exactly obviously there's that sort of cultural stigma of yeah i'm a guy i do this blah 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 blah. but the reality is that it was a forum to for them to try out different things different identities and it's a it's also a sort of safe way of doing it because there's a source kind of distance right it's the character that's Mm -hmm. trying on the clothes or decorating the bathroom or whatever. It's a container. There's a safe Mm. container to do that in. And we don't, you know, one of the ways where 12-step, for example, falls short is the container's not that safe because it's an egalitarian 
as Harriet called it, communist, but it's this like equal power space, which means that there's no one responsible for holding the container and making the container safe. It's like a group container and the group is responsible. Well, there's a lot of really unwell people in any group and it's not safe to emerge identities, hidden identities so much in 12 step. It's what's what is safe is to assimilate. And that works really well for a lot of people because a lot of people have no idea who they are. I didn't even know what my favorite color was when I got into recovery. Mm -hmm. And so that works really well, but it also doesn't allow that kind of play and exploration. So Sims, Wicked Safe Container, the kind of work that I do and many others do are within safe containers. So you can flop and gain just as much. I'm a big person on if the group, if a game doesn't go well, I'm like, oh shit, that didn't go well, y'all. What happened? Let's talk about it. So we can just learn from like, first I can role model that like, I'm a, I don't, I, there's plenty of things I do wrong or wrong is even terrible language, but there's many ways in which decisions I make don't play out the way I wanted them to. And I learned from those and we, there's not a lot of spaces that we do that in. We need to do that more often of just, hey, I, wanted, I tried this thing and I really wanted it to go well and it completely flopped. What do you all think I could have done differently. You know? It, it has parallels with Dungeons and Dragons, right? <laughs> there's yes. the sort of dungeon master and then all the players and everyone always has, there's always some kind of drama. But it's fascinating because I have read stuff that being used in a sort of therapy context, either role-playing games, board games, or video games. Mm-hmm. Because exactly what you said, they're safe containers. They're a place you can try out things without stigma. And a lot of People who are street-based, deep into either incarcerated culture and environment or substance use, sex work, drug supply, like those are spaces that it's life and death if you mess up. And there's not a lot of risk. So I was in, I was really extreme user and extreme lifestyle. And so in some ways you could say people always were like, you're crazy, you take crazy risks and you're nuts and you start beefs with Latin kings and do all this crazy stuff. And in some ways I took huge risks, but in others I didn't. I played exactly the book. I played the script that I thought put me at the least risk of not getting my needs met. And that is survival, Mm -hmm. is simply doing whatever it takes to get my needs met. And if I only have one script to do that by, I'm going to play that character to the utmost. And so that I was very committed to that role. And so I didn't actually really take a lot of risks at all. I played true to the character. It's the kind of risk of stepping outside of character that's terrifying. So had I shown a different kind of vulnerability in that lifestyle, I definitely could have died in the same way that I could have died from the risks that I was taking within the character too. But it's a much scarier, it's much scarier to step outside of his character. That's what you know, right? That's the, however, however it's not serving you, it can, it's still safe because it's known. Exactly. Exactly. And I would much rather have you shut me down in some way with money, drugs, control power and all that then external control and power and that kind of thing then to shut me down or reject me when i share a part of my identity with you because mm-hmm. that is the scariest thing of all is social rejection 
sharing a true part of like, like being authentic and having that rejected. I think authenticity is one of the most badass things in the world. And it's one of the qualities that I strive for most. And I think I do a decent job of it, but it's terrifying to be authentic. And, but authenticity is the solution. If we all could be a little more authentic, then we all could understand that we're all just trying to get the same things. Man, I just need my needs met. And that's love and belonging and self-actualization, purpose, meaning, safety, love. And so if I don't believe that I can get that through being authentic, then I'm going to manipulate. And those are, those are the two polar kind of things, authentic and manipulative or coercion and that kind of thing. So I think it's terrifying for people to be authentic. And I think like, for example, first person narrative is the invitation to be authentic. The most intoxicating stories are those that are authentic. Ones that draw you in the most are people just standing, the moth story hour, moth like the bug, moth, is one of the most famous and well-known used forums for personal narrative storytelling. And it's literally a bunch of strangers. The first time I went to a moth story slam, it was in a comedy club. There was like 200 people, who all of whom were drinking or drunk and you put your name in the hat and if your name gets called you go up there I go up there I have five minutes standing in a mic in front of this crowd of strangers who were all drinking drunk whatever and I just have to tell I tell the truth about myself in story form for five minutes and I get judged it's a competition Mm -hmm. and so for me I went up there and I told a story about risk-taking and taking risks as a kid, like skiing, very extreme skiing and extreme horse riding and all of this stuff. And then I followed the risk-taking model into substance use and eventually addiction. And and then it took me to jail cells, whatever, alleys, homeless shelves, blah, blah, blah. And then how I had to take risks to get into recovery and be in recovery. And I told that story, I was terrified and I got a standing ovation and I won the story slam. And I was like, this is fascinating. And all these people came up to me afterwards to tell me their like connection to, oh, my, my loved one is, has an addiction problem or, oh, I'm in recovery or whatever. There was a couple people in recovery. But I was like blown away at the power of just getting up and telling the, the truth about myself and how watching the other stories being told from that stage and how the audience is wrapped, absolutely wrapped can hear a pin drop when people are storytelling in a moth story slam. Is there a difference between authenticity and vulnerability? Are they one and the same thing? No. I think they're closely, in my opinion, I think they're closely aligned. And maybe you can't have one without the other to some degree. But I think I can be authentic without necessarily being super vulnerable. I can be authentic in saying that I'm not willing to be vulnerable in this moment. Or I think authenticity just means that my outsides match my insides. Like I'm representing to you what's actually what I believe to be true about myself. And so I can do that to different degrees. Vulnerable authenticity is like maybe the Mecca, right? It's like the utmost of that is combining the two. But I think I can be vulnerable without power. And that's not really authenticity. And I can be authentic without actually giving you the power to because think vulnerability right it's the power to hurt me i'm giving i'm giving you an opportunity to harm me I, I think that the people that i love the most the people that i'm totally like a moth to a light to use the same term are the people who are authentic and vulnerable and to, to varying degrees obviously we have to judge when 
what kind of level of vulnerability and all that. But the those are the brave people who are willing to step out and just say, this is what's going on. This is how I feel. Here's my soft underbelly. Here's my, my tender heart. I'm fascinated with those people. Because we're so much more trustworthy when we're authentic and when we're willing to be vulnerable. We trust people who are authentic because we know where we stand. We're not guessing. It's someone who's just willing to say, listen, this is what this is for me. And then, then we can go from there. We can do stuff from there. But if I don't know what's going on for you, I can't trust you. Is it about right. unpacking words or stories and or is it about behavior or actions? Because there's plenty of people who you could believe are being authentic or vulnerable, but their actions might not fully line up with the things that they're saying, which can be quite confusing. Like (laughs) the trash example I can give you is I've been watching some reality TV program, Married at First Sight Australia. It's a joy and I thoroughly recommend it. But there's definitely that sort of misalignment where you can see people actually getting quite hurt because their partner is saying like all these buzzwords that are like the things that they want to hear, but their actions are like completely separate they're off doing something entirely and you can really see that maybe people who haven't experienced characters like this getting completely thrown by it this is the power of words you can say something's authentic and then people let their defenses down because they say oh i'm being authentic and you're like oh okay i guess that's the truth then so it's yeah i don't really know what my question is but it's how you navigate what's the acid test of authenticity because i find it to be a slippery thing naming something that's a huge thing right now which is that authenticity is hip authenticity right. is cool authenticity is like a buzzword so people are saying they're authentic and they're are full of shit. <laughs> they're using it to get something, right? So if you're being authentic to get something, then it's not authentic. If the here's the my other definition. My my definition for authenticity in storytelling is that I'm going to tell the truth about myself to you and I'm not going to be concerned about what you think of me because of it. So mm. I'm going to detach your judgment from my truth. I am just telling you the truth as as well as I know it. And I don't care what you think of me. I'm not trying to make you look at me a certain way. So when I see the bullshit authenticity out in the world, it's people who are saying that they're authentic because it makes them look a certain way. I think in our society, having a lot of like self-awareness and cohesion is constantly punished. <laughs> and in that in, kind in of what environment. Sense? In what sense? Right. Like, for example, I mean, a lot of, say, our basic kind of socialization standards, right? When people ask, like, how are you? They really don't mean, how are you? They're looking (laughs) for, right? They're looking for, I'm fine. And even, even if you are a close associate, sometimes people aren't really interested in actually hearing how you are. Because ultimately, we are a society that doesn't really, that, that tends to punish, that doesn't really accept mistakes, or that doesn't accept like the exploration process in people. That ultimately leads to this very disassociated and black and white kind of 
thing of that a huge part of the lack of self-awareness isn't that the people aren't self-aware, but that they've grew up in an environment where self-awareness wasn't promoted or it wasn't rewarded in any kind of way, usually where it was punished, right? Because so in our, even within our family systems, within our social systems, like how you quote unquote perform is a lot more important than who you are what you're feeling. Yeah. Self-awareness threatens denial. So your oh, yeah. self-awareness threatens my denial. Right. So oh. if you're going to be out there saying, you're going to be out there saying, I always have, I find it challenging to talk about my childhood publicly, It depending on the question, the topic, the reason, the forum and all of that stuff, because what I have learned for myself about the environment that I was raised in refutes the narrative of others who participated in that environment. And I am not out to do that. I don't want to do that to someone else because stories, one of the pieces of the safe container in my workshop is that stories are always true, period. Stories are always true. Whatever story you're telling in here, that is true. I am not going to question that because it's a sacred thing. And it's none of my, I can't, how can I possibly decide if your story is true or not? And why would I try to? My self-awareness is a huge threat to your world order. So we're all, we all have our like world order. This is what the world order is. This is what the world looks like. Storytelling is a move. So the definition of a story is like a personal change or transformation. So there's the current world order. The beginning, there's three parts to a story, beginning, middle, and end. The beginning is the current world order at the time that the story begins. The middle is the inciting incident, right? This is the narrative arc of the hero's journey. There's many models in which this is a narrative model. The inciting incident, the thing that challenges the world order. And there's something that the character wants or is trying to get or achieve or do or whatever. And so the middle is the battle of trying to get that thing or achieve that thing or save yourself from a threat or whatever. And the climax of a story is the turning point where you either get the thing, you don't get the thing, you get something else. It's like there's some level of resolution or a pivot from that battle. And that's where your world order shifts to the new world order. And then there's the denouement ending, which is coming off of that peak of the climax and coming to, okay, this is what life is now. So Mm -hmm. I've been changed by this incident. The old world order, the struggle, the change in me, and the new world order. And so anything that that challenges my old or current world order is a threat to my stability, my safety, me getting my needs met. And so I think that people, my self-awareness challenges your world order if you're engaged in the story with me. So it's very scary for people. And so we're, and we're changing the narrative right now. That work that I'm doing this recovery space is I have to be careful in it because I deeply love, respect, and admire the people who have established the world order that we have now. Not all of them, (laughs) but many of them. And I'm here disrupting. I am the one of the inciting incidents, or I am the one who's telling my narratives and helping other people tell tell narratives that disrupt that world order, because I want the new world order. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but it doesn't look like what we have right now. And I have some idea of where I want to go, but mostly I just want to disrupt and change that. And so I am threatening 
the status quo in the establishment because they don't know where what's going to happen. They may not have their needs met or their desires met or whatever because they're in the face of a threat or a struggle. And the whole movement of harm reduction is a threat to the status quo in the current world order. And so a lot of people just immediately shut it down. And, and if I could, I, I, I was listening to one of your, pod, your recent podcasts and I feel compelled to speak about it because there are narratives in there about medically assisted recovery that really hurt me. Mm. W- wounded me and I think are damaging to the meant to save lives. And that, that was a conversation around Suboxone and, and methadone. And there was some misinformation in it that I want to just correct. I don't really like that word, but to give some facts about it and to just name name the stigma that is so damaging around Suboxone and, and methadone. And methadone was developed by Hitler for his soldiers in, in war as a pain reliever. And as a way to keep them fighting. And we stole it in the U.S. and developed it as a pain medicine. And then we realized, oh, wait, this can help people who are opioid dependent as well. And so mm-hmm. methadone is an agonist. It fills the risk. It's an opioid. It fills the receptors in the brain that feel pain and like opioids, right? Our mm-hmm. brain is built for opioids. So methadone fills those receptors. And it does a really good job of satisfying that that need for opioids. If you're opioid dependent, it also does a really great job of pain control. So for folks especially who have both substance use challenges and pain, chronic pain, it is a very effective tool. What upsets people about it is that they feel that some people are over-medicated or some people are impacted by it in a way that changes their affect and their way of being and their quality of life. And that some people abuse it. And so people abuse everything, right? So that's just inherent in it. So that's methadone. (laughs) And it's so stigmatized that you have to go to a clinic every single day. And that's a whole nother episode, but- It's uh, outside of the standard pharmaceutical. You can't just go to a pharmacy and get like your mom worth of methadone. Which in the UK, I'm not sure exactly how it is now. When I was in, I lived in the UK for three years as a a person with a heroin dependence and we could, we would get it prescribed and you just go to the pharmacy and you get a bottle of a month's supply because we were trusted to do whatever we were going to do with it. You can't control it anyway. We had the dignity of going to a, a GP, a general practitioner's office, getting a prescription, going across the street to the pharmacy, filling it and going home. In the US, we don't allow that because we can't be trusted. Right. So that's methadone. Suboxone was developed simply as an alternative, as another option. And so Suboxone is buprenorphine, which is an opioid derivative, and naloxone, which is what Narcan is made of. And so that's both an agonist and an antagonist. So the buprenorphine partially fills the receptors that are crying out for the want the opioids and the and the, the absence of which makes you very ill. And then the some partially blocks them too. And the benefit of that is that you then, it limits how much other opioid can get to the receptors. So you're much less likely to overdose and you're much less likely to feel euphoria from using other opioids. And because it's agonist and antagonist, it tends to have less of that sort of impaired affect if depending on the dosage. If the dosage is right for either methadone or suboxone, then people won't be significantly impaired. But it's tough to find that dose and many reasons why some people may be overprescribed. And many people want that lack of ability to feel euphoria 
because it makes it pointless to use. And for many people, that's super helpful. Suboxone can also be used for pain. I was in recovery being prescribed Suboxone for, because I have a back injury from years ago that's had me in significant chronic pain my whole life and found that in the absence of the opioids that I had been using, my pain was intolerable. It's just intolerable. And so I was prescribed Suboxone as a great mitigator between the two of being somebody who's had opioid dependence and someone who legitimately needs to be treated for pain. So it is, they are both excellent tools and should be completely supported. They have so much stigma and a lot of that comes from 12-step and the traditional treatment model. And that's really frustrating and devastating because these are tools that could be saving so many lives if the stigma wasn't ripe and present and really sometimes vicious. Right. The other piece in there was that one of the guests was talking about a dependence or tolerance to naloxone, and that's just not true. There is no such thing as a tolerance to naloxone, which is Narcan. All it does is block the receptors. Nothing else happens other than it caps the receptors for a period of time. So whatever opioids are in the sort of the synapse who are like floating around in your brain can't get into the receptors to kill you. Pain episode. No, it was the tw- Beyond 12-Step in Reham. Okay. Okay. No, Two guys, right? Yeah, Bob and V. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And I was not trying to call them out at all. No, I was just trying really? to figure out which episode. The context. Of- yeah, the context. Yeah, yeah, it really upset me. It really upset me because, again, it's the narratives, right? It's the stories that we tell about these things. And so if we're telling a story about Suboxone that it's less than or not good enough, or it's a weapon or tool of the pharmaceutical industry. Like some of those things, there might be some truth in, yeah, it's very beneficial to the pharmaceutical company to have the solution to the problem they create, which of course the problem is so much multifaceted and not just that. But but what is also true is that Suboxone is incredibly successful and needs to be supported. And with Narcan, the reason that you see people having to administer multiple doses of Narcan is that it's very short acting. And the way that fentanyl operates, it's the chemical makeup of it is that it, it floods the brain in a much more intense way. So there's much more of the opioid sort of in the brain trying to get to the receptors. And so it overwhelms the Narcan and the Narcan can only work so much. And then you have to keep keep giving the Narcan to keep somebody alive long enough for the flood of of fentanyl to subside again. Right. And it also depends on what it's mixed with, right? If it's mixed with any kind of benzodiazepines or type of medication, then it doesn't work for Yes. And that's where CPR, there's absolute, this is the order. You do the sternum rub to to see if you can wake the person. If you cannot wake the person with a sternum rub, you can administer Narcan. You should call 911 right away. So do the sternum rub or call 911 or do the other way around, whichever way you want to do that. And then you can administer Narcan and start CPR. So CPR, respiratory failure is the thing that kills people in an overdose. And even with a benzo overdose, if you can keep the respiratory system going with CPR long enough for emergency responders to get there, then you can save a person's life. The the one thing that we have now is xylazine. Mm -hmm. And that is another animal tranquilizer that does not respond to, it's not an opioid. And so it does not respond to an administration. And that is much scarier and we don't have a tool. But I I stopped using opioids before there was Narcan. Naloxone has been around forever. Around since like at least the... 
70? Yeah, I don't remember. I don't know when it first emerged, but it's been around for many decades before they started using it for this purpose or they were using it and then they were using it in hospitals when they like, whoops, we gave that person too much meds. It's been used in that way for a long time, but it wasn't available. Maybe the value of the human lives who were overdosing out here were not. Nobody thought, wow, we should maybe use that tool for them until more recently when the deaths were unignorable. My friends have been dying from opioid overdoses for since the early 90s. And I don't know how, honestly, I think it's quite remarkable that I survived pre-Narcan. I stopped using opioids yeah. when Narcan was available. Yeah, and I, I don't was know how I survived the overdoses. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was, 90s was like the last big opioid wave. Yes, I was part of, I love it. I always joke around and I'm like part of history because, because like before Kate Moss was cool, like the heroin chic, like I was about two years ahead of that with being a white middle-class educated woman with heroin addiction. I graduated from college with an active dependence and an addiction with heroin. I went into the detox three weeks or six weeks after I graduated from college. So anyways, we've been living this long before people mm-hmm. have been paying attention to it. And we have these, and now it's so crazy. We have the tools because I was in buprenorphine trials in the early, the like the mid nineties, mid to late nineties, where it was like a shot in your butt and it was part of a study. We've developed these tools and this is, that's 20, that's over 20 years ago that I was being given buprenorphine and we still are talking shit about it. We're still not providing it widely to people. We just finally got rid of the X waiver, which is, so there's a whole nother piece. Like we never, we didn't allow doctors to prescribe Suboxone. Right. You had to go through this big training and get this, what the DEA called an X waiver. And so it was a big pain in the butt and it wasn't a great moneymaker and it was not worth the time and all the stigma. People didn't want to have addicts, quote unquote, addicts coming into their general practices. So So doctors had no incentive to get the X waiver. So we had a super limited pool of people prescribing Suboxone, never mind all the access barriers that, that are inherent in that. Now, finally, Years later, the DEA finally got rid of the X waiver in January of this year, but there's still no incentive for doctors to prescribe it. So for as long as it's been here, it is confounding. In some ways, it's confounding, and in some ways, it's exactly according to script that we still cannot give people fair and dignified access to life-saving medication that there there should be no shade thrown on by the recovery movement. If you're in recovery and you are denigrating and putting down these medications, you need to check yourself and look at your own beliefs about yourself and what you believe about who should access, be able to access recovery. Because we are gatekeepers of recovery. And that is one of the things that gets me the most angry. And so it is our, we are doing this to ourselves the recovery movement is doing this to ourselves because we've been brainwashed with along with everybody else that drugs are bad. People who do drugs are bad. We are sick and now we're not sick. So now we're different. We're not the same people as before. So those are other people who are still using drugs. The Urge by Dr. Carl Eric Fisher is an amazing book to help. Um, Did you? 
Oh my goodness. I would love to have a conversation with him. He, that book really, that and Maya Salovitz with Undoing Drugs and Unbroken Brain really Mm. have helped me understand why people in recovery are harming each other. Uh, because we're brainwashed, just like everybody else. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think back to, I must have, I wonder, just because both of them are, the guests are harm reductionists, and in conversation, they both support suboxone and methadone. So I am actually trying to jog my brain and trying to figure out where that happened in the conversation. Race can- is an interesting point, though which is that different opinions, right? Or different perspectives on stuff. Like, so one of the phrases I guess I've been exposed to whilst doing this podcast is that sort of beautifully concentrated thing about having your needs met, right? Or unmet Mm. needs. Like it is a perfect minimal amount of language that communicates something quite profound. But the problem lies is that one individual might say, this is how I have my needs met, which can be completely legitimate. (laughs) And another individual that they're in some kind of relationship needs their needs met in a completely different way that conflicts with this other person, how they need their needs met, right? And that has a parallel with these differing perspectives that different people have. So it's a real, this is where just like sort of everything rubs up against everything else. Because on one hand, I completely 100% am on board with, we need to un address unmet needs that seems to be the sort of central point at which you can get better you can make progress but the point being Mm. is that there is not just one person in this world (laughs) there's billions and unmet needs conflict and so what do you do about that that bit in between I have a theory about that or or my own belief about that is that we're the experts in our own experience, but that doesn't make it as experts in anyone else's experience. But we get tripped up with that. If I really had to fight hard, like if my experience is hard fought for life and death, I hold very dearly to my experience of the world and can and because I want other people to be well, too. I genuinely want someone who's struggling with things I've struggled with to get better. But the thing I have that I know the most is my experience. And so I think sometimes we get caught in this thing of that it it needs to be other people's experience too, instead of understanding that I'm only, the only thing I'm an expert in is my own experience. And that can only lend to a conversation. And I think it's really interesting with with those two guests because they they were amazing perspectives to have included in the conversation and I so appreciate who they are and the experience that they bring to the table and that in those voices and those narratives and everything but I think it's fascinating that for them to get their needs met they are sub they use substances right and they're living a quality of life that they're happy with or they that they're okay with or whatever and they're using substances to be at that quality of life but somehow suboxone or methadone is not included in that if that works for somebody else right so it's like this categorization right that which was that's i'm surprised because i know i've talked to both of them extensively and they're both at least in in conversation, have been very pro-methadone, pro-suboxone. I think what they don't like is the gatekeeping and the tube jumping that people have to go through to get it. 
And maybe mm. that didn't come across because I didn't catch that in the conversation. But that could be because I've had extensive conversations in private. So mm. I know the context that they're speaking under that totally maybe got missed in the conversation for our listeners. And fair. I only have one. Again, this is my experience of the conversation, oh, right? right? And that's kind like, of sometimes like the issue with if you've talked to guests for a long time and then they come on, then you know a lot of the things they say in context to all your prior conversations. That doesn't, that may come across very differently to, to our audience. And that's like an important reminder sometimes to listen more closely to certain things to on my part. Um, yeah, no. And, and how we speak is so important. And yet, again, our stories are also always true because in, in honoring that, and I think that goes to what you were saying, Liam, about what is the common denominator, right? And the common mm-hmm. denominator is like the universal human experience. And it's funny, I always say that like the universal language is emotion that transcends every kind of barrier. We are all built, no matter where, when, how, through what part of time or whatever, we are all built with emotions. And those emotions serve us. And so now I have this other layer that you just offered, Liam, to think about this, of those immersion emotions serve us by helping us get our needs met. They drive us to get our needs met. And so I guess the other layer that's universal is getting our needs met. We are we have to operate from a place of meeting our needs. And when we when we boil the needs down, they're the same for everybody. And it goes back to that infinite pathways of and you could apply that to life of we're all just trying to get our needs met. Yeah, which is doing that. Which is why the authenticity stuff I find difficult to navigate because it's entirely possible that someone who's completely manipulative is trying to get their needs met. And so that being authenticity being as a sort of way of figuring out something real of the person. It's yeah, I don't know, like feel it's like a word. This is a side, I guess. But sometimes when people talk about relationships, we often talk about, oh, they're just incompatible. And it's like a really loose word. It's too easy (laughs) as a word to describe maybe complicated dynamics. It doesn't really describe something. That, that happened between particular individuals. And I feel superficial. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like authenticity is one of those words that, like you said, it's popular, but I think it has become popular to the point of that it doesn't mean anything because your needs can be met through manipulative means. And yeah. It's been cheapened. It's been cheapened by people using it who aren't authentic. And I think in people trying I mean, to get we, their needs met. Right. I don't think we're a society that values authenticity, right? That's why like authenticity health, right? All these things are like aspirational, profitable industries because it's a society that doesn't easily provide for these things. So you have to fight tooth and nail for it. So I think it, it has been documented in, uh, I can't remember the books now, but it's probably in Mark Fisher's capitalist realism thing, just, but it's, I definitely have read it more recently and I can't remember the book, but it's that idea of that advertising is always stealing language. Like as soon as something becomes popular or rises to the surface that, that really communicates maybe something 
genuine, maybe an unmet need, it gets co-opted really quickly <laughs> by advertising and marketing. And now the language has, has lost its potency and you have to always be finding new words or new ways of expressing things before it then just gets used to sell you right. some bullshit, right? Like even, the, I don't know if you've come across the power threat meaning framework, Megan. It was but, no. It's brilliant. I'll send you a link to their stuff, but they very much are about, here's a framework. It might be useful to you. It's not about what's wrong with you. It's about what's happened to you. And let's mm -hmm. figure that out and let's find a story and a narrative and a way through this. And I think there are some influences from the Joseph Campbell stuff, the hero's journey, all that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. even that stuff, the hero's journey, that gets used by marketing departments and advertising departments all the time. It's mm -hmm. the fact that we have this discussion about your journey. That seems to be like everywhere. Everyone's always talking about their journey. And it's all attached to this idea of the monomyth and overcoming these obstacles. So even if it has practical, useful, positive applications and outcomes, you still have this parasitic <laughs> marketing advertising stuff, which is, oh, yeah, the hero's journey. Or oh, how can we work that into selling our products? So there's always this element of having to sniff out, like, in what ways am I being used or manipulated? Sometimes maybe with advertising, we want to be. Maybe we want to believe. Advertising is less about selling a product and more about selling a desire. Yeah, but it's also true that I come across this stuff of buying things doesn't make you happy. Bollocks. I've bought guitars that make me happy. <laughs> Every time I pick them up, they make me <laughs> guitars happy. Guitars. But, but again, like those, it's not the possession necessarily of just the guitar. It's Very, the music it makes. Right. It's the music. And music is an expression of your soul. Right. And so you're putting your authentic soul out on the line. Right. And they look When cool. you play music. Yeah. And I ascribe, I'm an old punk, right? I have whatever, a number of pairs of Doc Martin boots and I wear band t-shirts all the time. And I willingly and fully knowingly ascribe to that tribe and I'm willing to spend money mm. to share that part of me because I feel deep in my heart and I'm like punk. And mm -hmm. so that's an identity that's real. That's part of me, but it, but I have to, I guess, I don't have to. To, but I choose to engage in the capitalistic exercise of buying things that show other people that my heart is punk because that's a fundamental need, right? Of being human is to belong to a tribe because you're safe in a tribe. When you're out on your own, man, you can be hung out to dry like you're getting mm. eaten. So I think we're, I think you really named something powerful about that capitalism robs us of authenticity because it co ops everything that we try to create for ourselves that feels real and authentic. Yes. And as soon as an identity is put out there, it's co-opted. Look at trans, transgender and the gender spectrum is, is been weaponized. He started as a, a space of people just trying to name something that is real for them. And it becomes used for, against, with, by all of the different Players, I do a storytelling, I do storytelling workshops with, with a, one of the oldest transgender conferences in the country. And so I've watched over time as like the older people who identify as transgender on a binary of I, I was born or I have the genitalia of this gender, but I feel like this other gender. So I'm switching genders. 
has been the dominant narrative for the transgender community for a really long time. Now we're seeing non-binary and everything in between, like a spectrum with a younger generation. And the older generation is really believes in the binary. And a lot of them are having a really hard time integrating or seeing them at the same as people who are buying as non-binary or anywhere else on that spectrum. And so now when I when I hear the term transgender, I'm like, oof, does that really encompass it? Mm. Because it's been owned by a certain definition of that term. And so it doesn't allow a whole other group of people to be in it to be part of it so it's it doesn't it we will have endless things to add to the lgbtq acronym because mm-hmm. we can't just let it <laughs> we can't just sort of live under something more holistic and human without having to name every group because that means we have to separate every group if as a person who identifies as i don't like the term but pansexual i just don't like the word pan i don't know why but i'm an equal opportunity admirer i think all the parts are fun i don't care how i present or whatever i just if i'm attracted to you i'm attracted to you i don't really have a great place to belong in the movement as as though it's one movement right because a lot of folks who identify as lesbian and gay are like you're, you're only you're only part gay or part lesbian or part this or part that and I don't really belong in the trans community because even though I love trans people and I'm attracted to some trans people I am I have settled into cisgender and just I'm like that's it's cool I don't feel strongly enough to be anything else so I'm cool I'm just gonna identify as female it's that we keep having to make these separations which each time we distinguish like that, we leave people out. There's now others. And so we can endlessly keep trying to name all the others or we can stop owning these terms and trying to capitalize them or own the narrative about them. We lose the nuance back to that piece of authenticity. You're right. Authenticity is one of my favorite things and I love what I believe to be true authenticity, but it's totally watered down and somewhat meaningless because of all the people who are claiming it, who aren't living it. And I think one aspect of authenticity that often gets missed is fundamentally also, it's not just about your relationship to yourself, but like understanding that like options are good and that people behave and act in ways different from you. Right. And that it's okay. And we don't have to name it. We don't even have to name it. Can we just live in spectrums? Can we just exist on a continuum? People evolve and change over time. And that very, are there fixed things about us? Sure. Some things that we think are fixed aren't fixed 10 years down the line. But ultimately, yeah, there is like this very deep desire for compartmentalization. And this kind of very rigid definitions that kind of get applied to other people. And I think part of that's one, you can't really have, I think, authenticity unless you have a certain amount of radical acceptance, not just for yourself, Mm -hmm. but other people. 
Yes, agreed. Mm. Right. Authenticity is often so focused on like your relationship with yourself. This is who I am rather than this is how I inhabit myself in the world around me and people around me in context. And it has to be balanced with our need to name things. I, I spent a lot of my childhood and my early, like my teens, wishing I'd been born a boy and having no idea that I had a choice. And I had never really heard the word transgender, although I met that I had a few people enter my life who were transgender in my early teens, mid-teens, early 20s. And so I finally saw, oh, that's something that people do is change. And but I didn't get I didn't really understand it or have the real name for it to apply to myself until much, much later in life when I had given up and said, I guess I'm stuck with this female suit that I'm in and came to appreciate and love being a woman. But for 20 years, I didn't have a way to name how I felt. And so when it landed home for me, when I finally understood what being on a gender journey is, having that language and understanding gender as a spectrum and like we do need to name things in order to understand them better. So we can't not name things and and we provide, we give permission to others to name things for themselves when we name things. But I think where we go wrong is we attach so much to the name and we start to define and build boxes for the names that we think that people have to live within that we start to then keep, then we have a box that some people can't live in then we start misusing the word like like authenticity here i think authenticity being co-opted by capitalism is like a really interesting topic to explore right because am i being authentic now i'm questioning my authenticity i think it's perfectly encapsulated by what eco just said which is this idea that it is just about me and my authenticity that's the wrong takeaway that it's about it's in relation to other people it's the bits in between focus on the self is sort of an old refrain of yes it's true you're in your consciousness 24 7 it's probably a good idea that you get on with yourself (laughs) so you can at least sit in some sort of contented manner but you don't exist without everything else so it's the bits in between how do you navigate that and what does authenticity mean because i my personal feeling is that i have no idea who i am like i change dependent on who i'm around and Mm. is that fake no i don't think so i just think it's how it is I think it's a sort of way you navigate the social world and the social world is a tricky thing to navigate. I'm not trying to dump on authenticity. It's more just like I I've, I struggle with it. I really don't, I don't get it. <laughs> so that's why I'm talking about it. Alan Watts has got this whole thing really about you always essentially chasing your own tail. You never get there, right? There is no, I don't think there is an authentic self. I love this. I love anything. I love having my beliefs right in the, in the best possible way and making me really think about things and looking at things that I hold to be true for myself and saying, whoa, 
oh, wait, what is this really? And so I really appreciate this conversation that we're having. I like the idea of, am I being authentic for myself or for others? Why am I trying to be authentic? Obviously, what does authenticity mean to me? I think that for me in my journey of growth as a human being and my desire to evolve into, to, to never stop evolving, and I like to be useful in the world and be a force of good in the world. And like my evolution is like how much more good can I bring to the world? You know what I mean? But so my desire for authenticity is to honor who I am. And so if I'm being authentic to self, like if it's just an internal journey or desire or goal, I feel best when I feel like me. And that is an eternal quest of because who is me? And and it's always changing and depending on where, like you were saying, and where I am and what's happening and all that stuff. And because hopefully I'm always changing because boring. I don't want to stay the same. I am on a quest to explore, grow, be all the things, try all the things, do all the things because that's exciting. That's what drives me is curiosity. And I'm endlessly curious about me. Right. Yeah. We're, we tend to be self-fascinated creatures. And so my some of my curiosity about the world is how am I in it? So if I'm going to go do, I'm going to do a, like I'm afraid of heights and I have some physical disabilities. And so I'm going to go do this like adventure ropes course, week long, like adventure basic training on a ropes course terrifying mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. what I, what, so I want to do it because I want to see how I am in it yeah it's right. fascinating I want to yeah. see what happens what is going to go on for me because I hope I come out the other side of that exploration a better stronger like more effective person in the world and knowing myself a little better so perhaps this the quest for the authenticity is simply to not deceive myself to not lie or be disingenuous to myself because we all have fought hard to just be present and alive and yeah. yeah. are in whatever version of ourselves we are today. And I and think I also in challenging, in me challenging the idea of an authentic self, that the danger is that it's minimizing other people who mm. are in to that stuff and why would I do that and that would be a question I would have to go down the rabbit hole and ask myself that because it all becomes power plays potentially as well like in dismissing the authentic self it's like I'm saying actually I'm better (laughs) why the fuck would I do that and and I really liked your thing about your self-awareness threatens my denial I think that's huge and profound and I think that's that that comes back to that thing of has their unmet needs and what happens when they bump into each other and I think there is is having the grace to accept where maybe there's denial and self-awareness in yourself and other people. And the authentic self thing is, I obviously have no answers. And so it's food for thought for me as well. And can't we find the idea that we're all just trying to meet our needs, I think is that common ground that is possible to find. And when my need, my meeting, my fight to, to get my needs met, clashes with your fight to get your needs met if we have the opportunity to stop and understand what needs we're trying to meet each other's needs we realize we're actually probably trying to meet the same needs and that there's a way that we can meet them for both of us that doesn't harm each other and Mm -hmm. that actually we could probably work together to get all of our needs met 
in a way that is beautiful and loving and, and uplifting and connecting. We see it in politics today, like the reason we're so polarized in the U.S. is because no one's getting their needs met. And, and so the powers that be, divide and conquer, mm-hmm. is we say, those people are why my needs aren't getting met. Those people are why my needs aren't getting met. When it's the, we should be pointing up those people are why my needs aren't getting met. It's the 1%, right. the people who are holding on the power, whatever. And so really we're just, it's exactly what you've named is that we're fighting each other over getting our needs met. And when really, if we work together, yeah. we all of our needs would be met. There's plenty of resources. They're just not distributed properly. And I think we can look at that on a macro level and a micro level of how do I operate in the world? And I know for me and my own recovery, journey of my journey of just wellness and trying to be a better person is when I stopped the huge game changers when I stopped fighting to get my needs met and I just believed that they would be met. And so I no longer have to manipulate, deceive, trick, force, fight. I don't have to do any of that Mm -hmm. to get my needs met. I just have to keep walking forward in whatever seems like the most right thing I can do in 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 any given moment or day or week or year and I'll be okay. And it's a completely different way to to operate in the world. And I don't do it even remotely perfectly. And there are areas of my life in which I'm still fighting. The in which I'm and I'm fighting because I'm scared. Mm. Because I feel vulnerable or threatened. And so that is I think what is like universal for us. And I think that if we interact with people in a way that helps them feel like we have their needs at heart and we respect whatever needs are unmet for them. And we meet with the understanding that we're all have, we all have these needs that we can do a much better job of seeing each other and valuing each other. Yeah. And I think that's a really good circle back to the original purpose of the episode, which is what is wrong with treatment, right? One aspect of trying to meet your own needs, meet other people's needs, authenticity, all of these things can't happen without curiosity and compassion, whether it's for self or other people. That's part of the huge problem of treatment is that by already saying, we know what your problem is. You're shutting off so much inquiry that needs to happen. Agreed. Yeah. Because what is being like being a subject, being othered, right? Is that you have no self because in everyone else's eyes, they already know who you are, regardless of who you are. You are X, Y, Z, right? And that you lose your ability to be yourself. And that's why all these scripts and performances have such an outsized place in a lot of ways, because that is how people survive and navigate when they've become a subject. All those things are about like shutting down inquiry, right? Because inquiry is the first step to compassion. Compassion isn't just like this fuzzy, warm feeling of warmth. It's you want to know, you want to know more, right? You want to inquire, you want to get to the core of things. And that in our society is constantly routinely shut down. And that is what makes, I think, authenticity extremely like this thing rather than a process, right? It's because how we look, how most people look at things like authenticity, confidence, right? Is this like emotional quality rather than like also like a process. It's not like this perfect end goal. But like this constant process. Like a practice. 
Because one of the things about a lot of times when clients have asked me, like, what do you think? I don't think I'm a confident person. And how do I get confidence? And a lot of times, again, confidence is a process, right? And it, I, confidence isn't about walking into a room and knowing you're the shit. Confidence is walking into a room and being like, hey, where challenges get thrown my way, I can learn, right? That I will somehow, when whether that's because confidence can be like being able to figure out like who's a good mentor. I'm in this room. I don't know what the fuck is going on. Who do I start? Like confidence is being able to start talking to people to like recognize and find mentors or find good guys. Mm, who's making good decisions kind of thing. It's not about knowing that, you know. Your hot shit. It's about being, it's about all these skills of, hey, like, how do I learn? How do I evolve? How do I adapt to these challenges? It's, yes. It's a belief that I can navigate whatever I encounter. I do. I really like that. And I think that's one of those things that when we're talking about trying to a little bit get back to what some of the goal of this conversation is, what is the alternative, right? If, we, if we've got this 12-step model and we've got this treatment model and it's not really seeing people for who they are, it's not treating people individually, it's not giving people what they need, what is there? And I think that connected to what you were just saying as like in recovery coach, I think the solutions are community-based and they're complex and they're highly individualized and that's really hard to implement. And one of the tools that we have is recovery coaching and I'm referring to it because as a recovery coach, just want to help you gain the tools to navigate your own stuff. I'm not going to tell you what the tools are. I'm not going to give you the tools. I'm not going to solve the problem for you because if I just keep solving problems for you, which is what I think that the treatment industry does, I'm not teaching you. I'm not helping you learn. I don't even have the ability to teach you to problem solve. I'm not helping you learn to do it yourself. And so part of the recovery process is gaining the tools and the belief that I can navigate challenges and encounter challenges. And that's like the definition of resilience is that I can navigate failure. I can navigate challenges. I can be okay in the face of hard things. And I think we miss that fundamental need that many people who have been beaten up by whatever the stuff is, substance use and mental health and violence and all the thing, trauma and all that stuff, is we don't know how to navigate the challenges. We haven't figured that out yet or we haven't been given a place in which we can learn that. And so I think the solutions are in the community and in building people up and allowing them to be in places that they feel that they belong and where they might be able to to succeed and where they feel alive and a part of and where their identity and culture is honored and, and giving them an opportunity to, to have small successes at things, to build that kind of confidence. Because ultimately, I think if you are chasing a specific emotion, you're always going to fall short because emotions are fleeting. And there, I don't know of a single person that like, quote unquote, feels confident or feels authentic all the time. Oh, God, no. <laughs> That's one of the things that like oftentimes, like I had a client that was just like, we talk so much about authenticity and like, how do you feel authentic all the time? And I'm just like, you can't. <laughs> he was like, what? He was like, I thought we were supposed to feel authentic all the time. And said, emotions are fleeting. Authenticity is a process. Yeah. And I think if you work a service job, you'd be very quickly that you can't be authentic because you would get fired. <laughs> Right. I would just be mm -hmm. telling the customers to fuck off after three hours of work. You just, ah, just leave me alone. Oh, Don't yeah. We're just like, leave me alone. 
But I love that point. I love that thing about learning in the sense of I'm going to be okay in the face of hard things and collecting evidence and proving to yourself that's Mm. the case. I think that's massive. That is the sort of, like you said, the definition of building someone up is that they Mm. have the opportunity to see themselves handle hard things. And that oftentimes that does start in play that does start in role playing giving people space to take the risks and succeed that just like that 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 playful exploration is and that's in that sort of improv right improv is risk-taking and if it's done well you're taking small risks and trying something and and just seeing what happens and if it flops you're still okay yeah, And it encourages you to take another risk. So I think I absolutely I love how you tied playback to that because play is taking risks. When you explore, mm-hmm. one of the most vulnerable things is learning. And as, a, as an educator, I talk to people a lot about we create a safe container to learn in because learning is vulnerable because the first step in learning is saying, I don't know yeah. um, and I don't have the answer. And I'm willing to say that someone else might. And I'm I'm willing to put aside what I think I know and say that someone else might know more or better or different or whatever. And so I love that about playing, exploring, learning. Yeah. And to your point as well of going to the, the treetop thing, it's that sort of sense of just expanding skills and experiences and even just booking it <laughs> and there's something you, as something you're going to do is yeah i'm up for the challenge what whatever happens i'm willing to experience it it's all it's all sort of super practical stuff isn't it it's all yeah you can see ways that you can apply this to sort of your own life yeah i, I really it's a really great point just the confidence equals i can learn yeah, ultimately, because yeah, a lot of people come in, especially a lot of times men come into treatment talking about confidence. It's like, I can do everything myself without help is what they equate with confidence, right? And ultimately, that's a recipe for isolation, not confidence. Right, yeah. Because that is the idea of in our society of this ideal person to a certain sense is this Superman, whether you're a boss lady or a boss dude, right? You're, you don't need anybody. You get everything done. And it's an extraordinarily, it's an antithesis to a social species. If we were solitary animals, then yeah, like you do have to do everything yourself, but we are absolutely not solitary animals. And so much about our society and how we treat people goes against our very social nature. Speaking of unmet needs, I'm I really need to go make myself some dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and I really I've needed to pee for like an hour three here. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for all your time and for holding your pee for over an hour. That is, that is a level above for podcast commitment. So very it's grateful. Been, it's been a fascinating conversation and I'm really leaving this conversation with many things to think about and challenging some of my understandings and my things I hold to be true. And so I think that's the best kind of conversation. And and so I'm really grateful for that. And and so I thank you for inviting me into a space in which we can do that. Yeah, Um, likewise. And like you said, with the treetop thing, it's like there's this ever-changing self that reveals itself to you, I guess, throughout your lifetime. You end up constantly rediscovering who you are or who you thought you were. I think Mm -hmm. that's 
maybe that's the authentic self is like you said it's a process it's a process of discovering things surprising yourself maybe you learn things about yourself you learn things about other people you maintain curiosity and and inquiry yeah and there's vulnerability in that because if I'm growing and learning, it means I'm also saying what I knew before was wrong. It was fine at that time. So there's another layer of vulnerability of me constantly changing as a person is saying that version of me from last week isn't the ideal. Like that was yeah. okay. Now I'm this. So it's like like me saying earlier, <laughs> I might listen to this podcast in six months or a year and be like, oh my goodness me. And it's part of me hopes I do. Because it means that oh, I've yeah. learned all that much more. But there's a vulnerability in in, in evolving and yeah. changing. Because it's to some degree saying what I believed before is not as good or now I have to see something different or whatever. Absolutely. Mm, good luck point. editing. <laughs> It'll be fun. It'll be fun. <laughs>